0: Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson.
1: And I'm Jordan Rubin.
0: So this was going to be your sneak peek episode for the cases to be argued during the week of March 23rd, but the Supreme Court has announced that it's postponing the March sitting based on concerns over the global pandemic. In doing so, the court noted that postponing arguments actually isn't unprecedented, the court did the same thing during the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic, and also in 1793 and 1798 due to outbreaks of yellow fever. So this is totally business as usual, right, Jordan?
1: Yeah, totally, just like, uh, you know, back in uh, 1793. So that's uh, that's comforting, totally normal. Uh, you know, I'm trying to keep my usual routine by pretty much sitting all of the time and not shaving and eating constantly. So you know, when we go back to normal, I'll still be doing those same things again. So it hasn't been too much of a change for me.
0: That's a lot of information. Yeah. (laughs) The court noted, though, that it will continue to work, but some of the justices may be working remotely.
1: Right. And just like the justices, we here at Bloomberg Law have been uh, sent home to work remotely. So we're recording this uh, along with our two guests in four different places. Actually, it's five different places with our uh, producer, David, who's going to put this thing together for us. Uh, shout out to David.
0: Thanks for all your Frankensteining, David. We appreciate yeah. it. So, Jordan, there's a lot of uncertainty, but what do we know about how the Supreme Court is handling coronavirus?
1: We know that the March argument session that was supposed to start on Monday the 23rd is postponed. We know that the justices are going to go forward with their private conference on Friday, March 20th, where they'll decide whether to take up any new cases for next term. And we know that even though there won't be any arguments starting the 23rd, we'll get orders from Friday's conference that Monday morning, the 23rd, and those will be sent out electronically on the court's website. And of course, we'll be reporting on those. And we also know that the press office at the court is closed until further notice. So from here on out, it's all electronic all the time.
0: Now, the court has said that some of the justices may attend that conference on Friday uh, remotely, and that actually is not totally unprecedented either, though we don't have to go back to the 1700s to find a recent example. Back in 2019, while recovering from cancer, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg worked remotely, including attending a conference telephonically. So that covers pretty much what we know. What is it that we don't know about how the court will operate during the coronavirus outbreak? What
1: don't we know about the court? How much time do we have? Well, we don't know when the court will reschedule the March arguments. Uh, There's some pretty significant cases in that sitting, including the fight over financial subpoenas into President Trump's records. Uh, We did our last deep dive episode on that dispute. So, uh, check that one out. We don't know if the justices will reschedule those March cases and the others uh, for this term or next or ever. Uh, We also don't know what they'll do about the April sitting, which is supposed to start on April 20th. And you and I have a story out about the uncertainty about that this week. So check that one out, all you listeners. We also don't know when we're going to get the next opinions or whether the justices will release those opinions electronically without taking the bench. So what don't we know? Um, pretty much everything.
0: Well, uh, let's bring on somebody who does know a little something. So to chat about some of the options for the justices, let's bring on our guest, Fix the Courts, Gabe Roth. His watchdog group focuses on transparency at the high court or more frequently, the lack thereof. Uh, Gabe, thanks so much for being on.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
0: So we've been chatting about the April sitting and what the justices might do there. Typically, these cases are argued in person with only about 50 or so seats available to the public. But if the virus continues to spread and in-person arguments aren't wise for the court to do, what are some of the options that the justices have? Well, well
2: first off, I'm, I'm really pleased that the justices decided to postpone the March sitting. That would have been the cases starting March 23rd, and running through April 1st. I think it was the right call, despite the fact that only 50 members of the public can be in the courtroom at once. The room itself fits 400 people, so that includes the justices, the clerks, the marshal, the attorneys, members of the Supreme Court bar, guests of the justices, etc. and any sort of- Oh, you
0: forgot the press. <laughs> Don't forget about
2: us. Yeah, so I think that that was, that was the right decision. And when you think about the the April sitting, starting on April 20th, there, there really are a lot of options that they could that they could undertake. I mean, I think that you can just even look at the, what the DC Circuit's doing um, that your colleagues reported on yesterday in terms of how it may proceed. Right there, theoretically, could be all arguments via teleconference. Um, there could be arguments. There could be cases that are just decided without argument. That happens. Not you know, there are a few cases like that are are, are uh, disposed of each year without argument. Um, or they could postpone it another month. I mean, I don't think there's any sort of... I know the justices love their summers and having three months off, but to paraphrase Chief Justice Roberts when he was a lawyer in the Reagan administration, only federal judges and schoolchildren get three months off a year, and it's a little ridiculous. So I think that you know, pushing the arguments into into the summer is okay. Ideally, what they would do, though, is keep the schedule as much as they can And allow, whether it be via teleconference or via just having the justices themselves and a few attorneys in the courtroom, allow the rest of the public to experience the arguments live in real time as they unfold via a live audio feed. That's what the D.C. Circuit uh, has done for a while. That's what the Ninth Circuit has done for years. That's what the Second and Fourth Circuit have done periodically. They have the technology. They have the know-how. They just lack the will. And I hope that changes in the next few weeks.
0: So has the Supreme Court ever uh, live-streamed any kind of audio?
2: They, the Supreme Court has live-streamed audio once uh, for a Supreme Court bar memorial service that, was, uh, that took place in the building, uh, I want to say, the week of—it was actually the week of the, the last election. It was uh, November of 2016, and though uh, Justice Scalia died— Uh, February 13th, 2016, they, for whatever reason, had a Supreme Court Bar Memorial service. And that was live streamed from livestream.supremecourt.gov, which was a website that existed on the internet for the three and a half years since then, since that service, for whatever reason, was pulled down a couple weeks ago. So I don't know if that means they're they're gearing up to to live stream some arguments or whatnot, but... uh, but they, they have the capability of doing that, especially since they do technically live stream or whatever you want to call it. They have you know closed circuit audio that plays elsewhere in the building, right? Both in the Supreme Court Lawyer's Lounge and also in the Supreme Court Public Information Office downstairs.
0: That's right. They do. Uh, they do pipe in the audio from the courtroom uh, downstairs while we're waiting for opinions and things like that.
1: So, Gabe, we know that The Supreme Court obviously is slow to move on these sorts of things. This would be the first time potentially that an argument would be live streamed, but they've at least done some same day audio in the past, right?
2: That's right. Yes, they've done same day audio 27 times since 2000, which was the first time that they did it for uh, a couple of uh, arguments related to Bush v. Gore. Uh, to, the, to the presidential race and how it unfolded in Florida. So since, that, since then, since December of 2000, they've done it a total of 27 times, most recently for the travel ban arguments. Again, they have the capability. The last time that they did same-day audio, they were able to turn around the audio within 45 minutes. Um, which is which is good um some of the lower courts, the federal circuits that allow same day audio sometimes they don't turn around the audio and post it online for a good twenty four or forty eight hours so so I think that that's look that's that's definitely not an ideal outcome uh if these arguments move forward in April, but I think it's better than uh it's better than nothing and and frankly it should be it should be routine i mean there's uh, I've been hearing from members of the House and the Senate this week saying, OK, you know, what can we do to, to help push this along, to help push the justices along to, to, to do something, whether it be same day audio or live audio? I don't think anyone's expecting video anytime soon. But, you know, what can we do to help push it along, to push the justices along to ensure that there's uh, some public access, greater public access to their arguments if they're going to only be, you know, 11 people in the courtroom come April 20th?
0: So I guess what are some of the concerns, what do the justices say are the reasons for not allowing things like live streaming or um, same-day audio as on a regular basis?
2: I think that there's this, this view that all of a sudden uh, the attorneys who present before the court, and it's sadly a you know, vanishingly small number of individuals who get the opportunity to present oral argument at the Supreme Court, um, but I think there's the concern from some of the justices that those folks would, quote unquote, play to the cameras or, you know, some justices have said, even Chief Justice Roberts has said, oh, I'm worried about what my colleagues would do if there was live audio um, or, or video, that, that there's going to be some sort of disruption or something like that. I mean, frankly, there, first of all, there have been disruptions during oral argument, everything from protesters standing up to a phone going off to a light bulb bursting And like, they dealt with it, the court dealt with it, the marshals dealt with it, the Supreme Court police dealt with it, and and they moved on. I mean, I think that, you know, just because they've they've never done it before, they're concerned about it, shouldn't matter. Uh, New things happen all the time, right? Live um, online filing was not a thing at the Supreme Court up until about two years ago, and and that's going great. So, you know, I think that there are, uh, the, the arguments really fall flat, and all the federal and state appeals courts that live stream the audio, whether it be the Supreme Court of Ohio, West Virginia, Michigan, Utah, Kansas, all across the country and uh, lower courts in the federal system like the D.C. Circuit, the Ninth Circuit, they've all had positive experiences with live streaming. So the idea that someone's going to talk at a turn and you know, there just really isn't the opportunity to grandstand when you have such a short amount of time to present your argument as you do in a state or federal case.
1: So, Gabe, do you think that this uh, tragedy is actually going to lead to there being some progress on the transparency front?
2: I mean, there really has to be. It's—the it's, it's the, the pressure is only going to continue to mount, and I, I don't know— I, I, the th- the thing that I'm still trying to sort of figure out and play out is is, is is where this actually comes from and how this actually happens, right? So theoretically, if if on Monday, April 20th, we hear Chicago versus Fulton, um, which is the next case currently scheduled uh, at the Supreme Court, if, if we only hear that, you know, on Friday, April 24th, because they're just keeping to their normal practices, but at the same time in the courtroom, there's only... You know, eleven— you know, the nine justices and the two attorneys, or maybe a marshal or, or a clerk or two. Um, there's going to be a public outcry, even, even you know, and again, that's not the largest of cases. Obviously, they're they're the Faithless Elector case that's being argued the following week, at least according to the schedule, or even the Trump taxes case um, that's that wasn't initially scheduled for March 31st. I mean, if if we have these major cases where there's just no progress, I think there's going to be a major outcry. What I what I do think is going to happen though. Is, and and I've been speaking despite all the craziness going on with some some folks on Capitol Hill, uh, remote from their homes, because that's where they're working now. There really is a lot of momentum behind this new bill that House uh, Judiciary Court Subcommittee Chairman Hank Johnson uh, introduced at the end of February, which would require same day audio at SCOTUS within a year and live audio at SCOTUS and all other federal appeals courts within two years. So I think you'll see some. So I think, you know. There, there might be some momentum at SCOTUS, but I don't expect them to go any far any farther than same-day audio, if anything. Um, but I do think that with—I uh, think congressional pressure will be ramped up. Obviously, I'm not exactly sure what will happen with the new uh, ranking member, Jim Jordan, on the Republican side. Um, the previous ranking member, Doug Collins, seemed to be a little bit more sanguine on, on audio. I don't really have a good sense of uh, Jim Jordan's— uh, Views though he he shared some staff with uh, Daryl Issa who is pro audio so who knows but um, I I do think that there's going to be a lot whatever happens at the court I do think there is going to be more congressional momentum um, you know once things are quote unquote back to normal in the summer around this issue.
0: Well, Gabe, thanks so much for joining us uh, about this issue. I know right now it's a lot of speculating, but it's uh, great to have somebody who has been following this issue for a long time. And we really appreciate you joining us remotely. So of course, the Supreme Court isn't the only judicial institution dealing with the coronavirus. Courts all over the country are shuttering or limiting services. And keeping
1: tabs on that for Bloomberg Law is our judiciary reporter, Madison Alder. Uh, Thanks for joining us, Maddie. What's the situation on the ground in the federal courts?
3: So, right now, we're seeing our courts across the country have really differentiating reactions to the coronavirus, kind of depending on where they're located. Due to the decentralized nature of the federal courts, these actions can really range. Um, the US courts can only do so much from an administrative perspective. Uh, so, this is really dependent on the situation in each of these courts' communities. So, some of their orders can range from, you know, just more sanitation and more guidance uh, based on whether people have flu-like symptoms or not or if they've been in contact with people who have coronavirus to actually just shutting the the courthouse to the public um, and in some cases delaying oral arguments, which is something that we're seeing a lot of right now.
0: So we chatted with our first guest, Gabe, about um, some of the live streaming options uh, that courts below are doing. Can you tell us a little bit about that um, for cases that are going forward? How are courts uh, kind of juggling those or dealing with that, that situation?
3: So live streaming is something that I think we're going to start to see more of, or teleconferencing, um, so doing all of these by phone, uh, but it's really going to depend on the the judge in each of these cases, or sometimes if it's the federal circuit, the three judge panel, they're going to make the determination, um, and I've already seen some circuits giving parties the option to have a teleconference or maybe delay the proceedings or go forward without an oral argument, which is uh, kind of interesting.
0: Uh, Can you tell us, are there certain courts that seem to be impacted more than others? I mean, I'm sure this depends a lot on geography.
3: It does, and we saw that with the initial reactions from a lot of the the courts. Uh, You saw courts in Washington, for example, where they had a really large outbreak uh, responding first. Uh, the Western District of Washington was one of the first courts to respond to this. But then you also saw the Ninth Circuit responding and courts in New York responding like the Southern District of New York. Um, and those are still you know, pretty big hotspots for this. They're kind of ahead of other courts when it comes to the responses. But I think as this virus spreads, we can see more of those reactions and a more uniform reaction um, across the country.
1: Well, thanks for that update. You can all follow along with Madison's coverage at news.bloomberglaw.com. And much like the Supreme Court justices, we're still adapting to this coronavirus situation. So uh, make sure that you're subscribed so you can catch the latest whenever we uh, have an update for you all on this novel situation.
0: Until then, stay safe and follow along with all the latest Supreme Court news at news.bloomberglaw.com.
2: Hey there, I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor for Bloomberg Government. And I'm Greg Giroux, senior elections reporter for Bloomberg Government. Check out our podcast, Down Ballot Counts. Each week, Greg and I will be breaking down all of those down ballot elections that make up the fight for the U.S. Congress.
1: Listen and subscribe to Down Ballot Counts from Bloomberg Government
2: wherever you get your podcasts.